everybody, it's the Definitive Podcast. I'm Randall Lobb. What? It's not key issue? No. Tonight is the first step of our branching out. We're branching out with someone beautiful, but we still do hand gestures. Isaac, as you see, I'm doing some sinuous dancing I'm doing moves. I'm doing bow and arrow to the air. Wow. That, uh, now, when you were on Soul Train, did you do those moves? Oh, yeah. Can you tell? Yeah. I play bass on Soul Train. That's amazing. We have someone here with us today who is on the West Coast, but is also an Easterner like us and is a documentary filmmaker like us and is probably engaged in the cultures that we like and we know about. How do you think, Isaac, we should introduce this person we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, I would introduce him as a film director. And uh, a, I, I'm going to call him, I, I, he might correct me on this, but a co-author of a pretty epic book or two. So yeah, th- there's an introduction. One, one that's coming up either recently or very soon, depending, depending on, on when this airs. <laughs> <laughs> that's the trick. Podcast. Here he is. It's Kyle Newman. I know you're there. Hand gestures. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks it. for having me on. He gets oh, it. Oh, it's so nice of you to come by. Um, and by come by, I mean Skype because COVID. Well, it's also We're really We're far. We're in the same space together. <laughs> it's true. So one of the things that we're doing is we're reaching out to people like yourself who has a life and a story in pop culture. And, you know, a little bit of origin story, a little bit of maybe self-serving. Tell us what you like, what you do, what you collect, what you have. That's kind of what we're interested in. But also point to what you're doing now, what you're passionate about, something that somebody else who's watching this might say, I need to look at that. I need to think about that. Or maybe I need to buy that if you have something interesting that people should pick up. We've focused a lot on comics and collectibles. But as I say, we're branching out. And if you were going to be memorialized as, uh, I don't know, a pop culture maker, where did that start for you? How did you change from being a fan to being someone who wants to do something there? You know, I never, I don't know if I even knew there was a distinction between the two because Mm. as a kid, I immersed myself in the things I love. So I played with Star Wars figures. I love Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games. Um, I love telling stories. And it was part of how I played. And I just found, I guess, thankfully uh, and organically a way to turn that into a career. So I guess I've been very blessed and fortunate in that way. But I think my philosophy has always been like, why can't I just keep pursuing the things I love is what I loved as a kid. And I just translated into um, a professional. Uh, so I think it's it involves staying in touch with the kid in you no matter how old you were. Um, I, I feel like I, I can look at things I've loved since I was a kid and um, with fresh eyes, not jaded eyes, and reacquaint myself. Um, recently, I got back into the world of Dungeons and Dragons, and how I learned how to draw and paint was either through the aliens in Star Wars, Marvel comic books, or the Monster Manual. And I didn't get to really play D&D as a young kid. My older brothers played. But... I got to flip through the books and hang out like Elliot and E.T. I was around it. So I, got, I would learn monsters and draw and practice my line work and, and do all that. Um, 
probably before I should have been playing D&D. So I just felt like I was I was in these worlds and they were part of my life. And then I got to go work with D&D years later. But I, when I got back into yeah. playing D&D, I didn't look at it as I wanted to recapture my youth. I didn't look at it as pure nostalgia. I just felt great joy playing it and escaping it. I had new, uh, new children and a group of friends. I put out a feeler on Facebook and my Star Wars game master, Sam Witwer, Darth Maul from the Clone Wars and, and other Star Wars properties. He took a little break from GMing. I didn't want to cheat on my Star Wars group. So I said, let's get, let's get back into D&D. And I, I just dove right back in and just reconnected with it as an adult. Not like I want to relive my 12-year-old life. And I just was like, where's the book that never existed? Like the, the book on the history of the game, the book on the art. And there wasn't one, so I was like, oh, I'm going to make it. So I just look at things as, as um, ways to explore what I love as, as opposed to, um, you know, just translate it into work per se. I just like, I want, I want to flip through this book. Where is it? It's not there. I'm going to make it. So well, <laughs> I guess that's how I've approached my, my life. So it's just like a blur as to like I played with these things when I was a kid, Star Wars and stuff, and, I, and like I got to do things with Star Wars. So – I don't know. It's, this, it's, Rand, it he is, is strange. He is the same person as us. Well, well, you know what's funny? It's so the same. We are born 10 years apart in three decades. Are we really? Yeah. There you go. And, and actually, but like everything he just, Kyle, well, let's talk about Kyle in the third person. Everything that you just described, Kyle, is, is kind of essentially the same reason that we started, well, at least for myself anyway, speaking for myself, that's exactly the same philosophy that I came into to our little thing that we do. I mean, specifically in that case was Ninja Turtles because again, 10 years apart. Yeah. Uh, and it was exactly the same thing. I was like, you know what? I really want to dig into the history of Ninja Turtles. And it was around college, around 2008, 2009, around the time that you were making um, a fanboy. I've got your IMDB up here. That's why I'm gesturing at my computer. Yeah. Uh, and around the exact same time. And, um, and yeah, it was like, hey, this doesn't exist. I'd love to watch it. So maybe I'll just make it because wouldn't it be cool to work on it? And exactly as you say you just take what you loved and stay in touch with with it but reinvent it in a new way that you're not like you say reinventing your childhood you're or reliving your childhood you're now doing something else with it and and carrying on and just staying fresh i love it i love this idea but there's something well, I to understand myself a little bit like why was i still into it you know sorry to cut you off it's like i no, can no, deep no. dive back into understand it and look at it in a new way especially with fanboys like i was a huge star wars fan and, and star wars really defined why I wanted to get into filmmaking to learn about special effects and storytelling. My background, like I said, was painting and drawing, but I wanted to collaborate with people. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And Star Wars really triggered that in me. And so it was great to go back into, into a property and tell a story in that world about fans and what it meant to them, but do some original, but still explore why I connected with it. What were the intrinsic values in it? And what are the principles of it that that indicates Star Wars, that communicates Star Wars, and how can we bring that to life in a different way? And then it inspires you to just go tell original, different things. So I, I think it's it's healthy to stay in touch with the things that informed you and not feel like you're above it because it definitely defined me and I, I love going back to these things. But if I can do it in a new and exciting way or learn something, like writing the D&D book, Art and Arcana, I learned about stuff, images that resonated with me. I could then go back and look at them in a new way, understand why they were historically important, uh, I studied film at New York University, but I minored in art history. And suddenly mm. I could go back into my art history minor and apply it to the evolution of fantasy art. 
and game history and um, advertising. And it was really exciting to look at art that resonated with me and, and struck me as a young person and then look at it in a new way and in a historical context and pop culture context. So it had a whole new experience with it. And it wasn't just like, I'm going to revisit this poster I loved because now I understand what it meant or what an Errol Otis, what the, why it looked different and why that mm-hmm. had a special effect on me versus another artist. So, well, um, if you look at it from ongoing, look at it from your perspective as a kid. And this is why I brought up that the we're 10 years apart is that we, we come into pop culture structures in different phases. Like you're born into a star Wars world. The two of you, you're just, that's the water that you're in. But with dungeons and dragons, um, the game is up. You see the material. You don't know about art trends or, you know what I'm getting at here? You're just experiencing it natively. Like, oh, there it is. Yeah. This this stuff's all here. So you're in a pick and choose environment. And it, I would think a lot of young kids, when they have stuff just sort of there, they would never think to flip and be on the other side, right? They're so participatory in it. Isaac and I come from a very small town. I know you're from the East Coast. So... Maybe New York is close to you. It's impossible to us. And California is not even a thing. So those industries even just seem so far away and so unattainable. Yeah, it was, it's just amazing. It was a fantasy. The industry itself yeah. was a fantasy. It seemed so far off and almost impossible. Yeah. And it gradually became more real when I, once I understood what it was and there were careers in it other than this was just I love stories and storytelling and making films and videos and drawing. And I came from a very small town too. Um, went to a very small high school. And although I lived about an hour outside of Manhattan, it was just another world. And especially mm-hmm. the film industry, I had no foothold in it, and no relatives, and there was no real nepotism or anything. It was just like, how do you do this? What do you do? I guess I go study it. And then, um, but it's not like any traditional industry where you can you know, you don't really go study it and get an apprenticeship or you don't get an, in- it's if you're gonna be a director, um, you just kind of have to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to graduate up to it. It's, it's weird the way you're just thrown into it. If you're gonna be a writer, you just write, you know, it, and there are steps to do that in television things that are different, but especially when I kind of was breaking into it, it was, there was no rule book and you just kind of had to put your faith in yourself and go for it. Um, so and there's a lot of people at film school with the same thing. They just know they loved it and that's why they were there. And they just were hoping to find a way to translate it into a career out of their passion. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, that maybe my impression would be, depending on the era that you're born, you have a certain amount of hunger or not. Like Isaac talks yeah, about this. Yeah, I agree. With, oh, you, you see what I'm saying then? Oh, totally. Yeah. So Isaac's it's, worried that his kids have too many things. You might well, worry yeah. about your kids. They have yeah. access to everything, so they don't have that same drive. It also that, puts a whole different like emphasis, not to get into a parenting podcast, but like it puts a whole different emphasis on curating or curatorship over the content they consume, not just from like a is it too violent? Is it blah, 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 blah. Like those those things. It's also, well, if I make a choice between him watching Pixar or Miyazaki he's going to absorb content. My son, he's going to absorb content 
in a different way depending on what he's used to. Is he used to something that happens every three seconds? Or is he, and so these, de- these decisions, our parents never made these decisions. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. They just went, here's the television. Saturday morning cartoons, after school cartoons, and yep. you know, then you'd kind of watch what came on next. You had very limited channels. I didn't grow up yeah. with cable. So I didn't have like a barrage of options. I didn't have like Fraggle Rock or HBO or MTV even. I had, maybe when I was a teen, We'd visit down the Jersey Shore and like the house we'd stay at had some MTV and I'd be like, wow. (laughs) But I I just wasn't exposed to even the spectrum of options. You know, I just knew what I liked on film and I would stay home from school as a kid. My mom was cool. I'd be like, yeah, I just want to stay home today and watch movies. And she would kind of allow it every once in a while. It was like a a mental reset. And I would watch (laughs) Temple of Doom and Aliens and things like that. And I'd be like, this is cool. I think I'm realizing that I'm actually the same person as Kyle because I didn't even go to school because I was homeschooled (laughs) and I didn't have cable and I watched all the same things. Yeah. We're we're figuring out the same person. And I remember those days more than I remember what I would have done in math on that day. I remember like staying out with my younger brother and watching some of our favorite films. And those days, and if you were a little bit sick, you could translate it into a stay at home and watch movies day. And I, I, so I, I had more movies to live off of than it was, um, like I think what kids have now, it's just endless YouTube. My sons watch a lot of, What's um, amazing. He used to watch a lot of unboxing and now they watch, you know, just, I don't even know what it is. It's just, I, I'm just constantly monitoring what's coming out of their mouths and gauging on the fly, the appropriateness of it. Uh, Cause they keep switching off YouTube kids and going to YouTube and, and I'm like, whoa, there's just so much. How do they keep track? But also it's interesting because things at their fingertips are stuff I didn't have at my fingertips. So mm-hmm. he's really, my, my six-year-old, he's on the cusp of being seven, but he's super into Nintendo history, Mario history. He could tell you the designers and different box art and releases and which regions had which game and uh, which edition. And I played video games at a Nintendo at a certain point, but I didn't maybe get into it that deeply. So he has access to all his knowledge and he's aware of how games are made and eight bit yeah. versus 16 bit versus beyond. And, and it's, it's pretty fascinating uh, the level of information he, he can absorb and then process, not just, not just like experience it, but that what he wants to talk about and engage. So there are certain benefits to it. And I guess it's a monster we've created because we yeah. willed this to be, we've wanted the star Trek type device in our pocket that had access to everything yet we also complain about how we have access to everything. So I think it's almost the fruition of our imagination, everything we're living in. But also like the benefit of all that is the literacy, you know, they're forced to read screens much earlier than probably I I did by having to, I think certain kids and cultures, you're you're asked to text, uh, which is probably increasing literacy and things like that, far beyond what was required previously to get by just in general teenage life or Mm -hmm. or preteen life. so you have to be certainly advanced in terms of being able to write and communicate and read because there's so much imagery and information flashed at you. So there are different benefits to it, but also you have to like mitigate what's absorbed and how it's being absorbed and the volume that's being absorbed. So there is a lot more responsibility for the parent. I think definitely more than I would come home from school, put on DuckTales and put on, you know, Thundercats and there weren't many other options, you know. Um, and I'd ride my bike to the comic book store and I'd pick up the weekly comic books and ride so my bike back and maybe three or four issues. And that was kind of the the media, you know, and I play role playing games like Star Wars West End. I play like Palladium. I play Ninja Turtles. I play GURPS and D&D. So there were those type of communities and pockets 
and I played sports and stuff too. So I was into a little bit of everything, but I mean, now it's hard. To, it is hard to get your kids off the couch and cause there's always something, it just flows right into the next thing. And it's not about what's programmed and, and, and projected into your eyes. Like you can just stream of conscious go anywhere and mm-hmm. it's different. So I do wonder how it's yeah. going to affect them as uh, their ability to be creative and where they're going to be positioned. Well, I always, I, I, I was looking at it as a, a lack of, they have nothing to want. They don't, what, what, what would a, what would a young person today need to want anything? I mean, there was a, I don't want to paraphrase the specific individual. I'm not going to title him. But anyway, there's a person, I was reading a book and he was talking about how when he grew up in the 80s, it was, you know, if you heard about an album, you heard about the new Rush album and you wanted to go and, and, and get it to see what it was like because you couldn't just hear it. You had to save up your money to buy the album, but also save up your money to get the bus ticket that then take you to the subway that then takes you downtown. And you get the album, you get back on the subway, get back on the bus, go home, put on your headphones, and then go sit through the whole thing. Whereas nowadays the kid's like, Hey, what's this new Rush album? Well, I have all of recorded music history and I'm sitting in the bathtub and I didn't have to leave. And, you know, because dad has an Apple music account down. So I don't have to want anything. And you listen for 20 minutes. Yeah. You listen for two minutes and you switch it. And you're like, yeah, I don't see what the fuss is about. Yeah, exactly. But we made it experience. I remember like the days albums would come out, like you're saying, those were big, oh, man. big moments. And you'd go to the store, be it Sam Goody or wherever, and you'd get it and you'd um, pop it in your CD player or your cassette player and you'd you didn't want to give it that full listen. You couldn't just easily even skip forward. You didn't even have the option to just, just like jump like that. You mean you kind of CDs started to do that, but now it's just like kids give things 30 seconds and they're like, eh, I don't know. So it's, it is a different uh, culture. Everything is at your fingertips. So you're not left wanting. What I was getting at to dig back into you again, what I was sort of getting at is, so the, the energy that would have to be burned to even know that somebody made something that you like. Like, I played Dungeons & Dragons starting in 79, and I knew the name Gary Gygax, but I would never have linked my knowledge of the game and the person in a way that we later learn. You know, a modern kid has so much yeah. access to the behind-the-scenes world. So for me to realize that I wanted to be in film... It took me a long time to even understand what that could mean and what what are the ramifications and how does that work. It's a different era yeah. from you guys. So I'm just interested, like you ended up in New York. Obviously, that's a very destination, uh, how to say it? It's a universal destination for a lot of interest and culture and excitement. Was yeah. that sort of how you ended up there, that you knew this was a center, like Stan Lee is there or whatever? It it felt like uh, there was – I knew I wanted to be – you know, there were certain schools I was attracted to and there was um, – I, I understood the community. You know, I'd read stories about the communities that emerged in the past, you know, be it like the um, previous generations of people at NYU or USC or some of the different film schools. And there's a mystique about the groups that discovered each other and – and I felt like community was going to be another part of the education. It wasn't just going to be like mm-hmm. what they could teach me because you couldn't just translate it right into a career. You had to like figure things out and find who your collaborators were going to be. So I wanted to find the best pools of collaborators. And um, I felt like, uh, you know, it was strange. I, I was looking at, you know, I got into USC and to, to NYU. And I, my brother at the time was uh, he's a physician and he was finishing residency in New York. And he's like, I had, he was 10 years older almost to the day. 
And I was like, I haven't really hadn't spent much time with him since I was like eight years old and I was going to be 18. I was picking schools. And I was like, well, he's in New York. He's in Long Island. I'll get to spend more time with him because he, he went to Chicago to do medical school and everything. And then I accepted and went to NYU. And then like about a month later, he's like, I'm going to Chicago back to, I'm like, what? Like, you know, but it worked out. It worked out well. And I was like looking at, it, I was like, okay, I'll have family nearby and it'll be fun. And, um, but there I was, I was on my own in the city and it worked out great. And, you know, I think a lot of the people I met at film school, you could tell who was serious and you could tell who really had a grasp and a vision and, and was committed. And, um, you immediately knew which people were going to have something to say and we're going to be able to translate it into um, some type of career and people just found each other and inspired each other and that was one of the best parts about it. I think now there's more options and there's many more places to go and sometimes you don't even need the school. You just need to find the community, uh, people to collaborate mm -hmm. with because film is just, it's not a desk job and you need to be able to work with a, a group and um, you know, when you're making a movie and I've made three features now and I've done some music videos like for Taylor Swift and Lana Del Rey and tours and things. And you work with big groups of people and sometimes people with strong voices. And ultimately you're trying to move a paintbrush with a hundred people, you know, or more. And that's not for everybody, you know? And I think you have to be a, a to an extent, a people person, especially like, you know, you guys work with IPs and you work with, yeah. there's personalities and there's people, you know, if it's doc, you're working with people whose creations it is, or people have something to say about it. And you have to navigate egos and film, you, you know, narrative, you're working with actors with egos and presence. Mm -hmm. And you have to unlock those things. There's some of it's sometimes it's insecurity and it's disguised as something else. Um, there's self-defense mechanisms, you know, there's actors that come in with totally different styles of work and you have to find ways to amalgamate it and simplify it into a cohesive way. So that style can integrate with this style so that actors that don't like rehearsing can work with the actor that wants to rehearse a hundred times before they roll camera. So there's all these different things. So the, the, almost the, the thing you, I mean, so much of it's ego management. You know, it's just you then you have to learn these skills. Yeah. You know, it's just like people skills that that go into directing beyond like writing is very different. It's much closer to painting, you know. So it's so there's all these different vocational hats you put on in order to and producing, you know, I've gotten to produce recently. It's like with for friend friend filmmakers. And you wanna be there as like creative support, also making sure they have what they need to execute creatively. Cause I've been in positions where I'm making something and people aren't supporting me. Like as a producer, they don't understand they don't really care what i'm saying we need you know mm -hmm. um and that's a hard place to be so that's another rewarding thing is helping somebody else tell their story and supporting them producerially so i just like all those different hats and uh but it's very different than saying like painting or drawing which you know my initial skill set was just sitting at a desk by yourself um it's, that's very solitary and lonely so I, I wanted to collaborate so um but you can do film it's gotten simpler and at the same time, it's gotten far more complex. So it's, it's well, always evolving. One thing I as find ever. interesting about your career path, um, Kyle, is that it's similar to kind of what, what we're, what we have done as well as dabbled in both doc and narrative. Was there a, yeah. a line that you wanted to go down to begin with, or were you just anything, anything goes? I like stories in general and things that, you know, at school we'd studied, I studied animation as a minor. I have an animation background. I loved doc. I loved foreign films. I love, I love drama. I love, um, 
sci-fi and I like all genre. I really like everything as long as I can connect or there's a, a way to look at it in a new way. And I think, you know, you, with documentary, it's like, what is your vantage in? Why, why now? And same thing with any story. It's like, why now? Why is it relevant now? And how are we getting in emotionally connecting with this character? Or how are we emotionally getting into this subject matter? So I think the same initial questions are there and I have to find ways for it to resonate with me and I have to feel like I can add to the mix. And I feel like for most part, I can, I think I, I can find ways to entry points into all different genres and formats, be it music videos or doc or, you know, animation. And I just have to feel like I'm allowed to explore that or express that. And then I'm going to feel like, okay, I can do something here. You know, I, and in my film career, I don't get brought great scripts. I get brought the project that's like the AA script that needs a sponsor. It's like this project's been through this. It lost yeah. this director. The script needs major work. Do you want to get involved? And a lot of times it's, is it a personality issue? Are there bad people involved? And now I've learned that that's a major part of the process is making sure you're not getting involved with people who are detrimental. Why is the script the way it is? Whoa. Yeah. Who's preventing it from getting there? Like one bad note can murder a story. Um, 10 can murder your life. So, I mean, if you're stuck executing bad things, you have to, you have to get rid of that beforehand. You shouldn't go down that road. So I've become much more, I've censored myself from just saying yes to everything, even though I get excited about what I can bring to the table. Um, I've had to apply a little bit of a life's too short. So, um, but I'm agnostic as to what format or, or, or what I like. And I've been, I respond to docs because you can explore and you can learn. And as a writer, I say to myself, a lot of people say, write what you write, what you know. And I look at it as that's a cop out. I think mm -hmm. I want to write what I want to know. Um, I'm writing from a place of exploration and uh, discovery and honesty. And I think doc best documentaries come from that place too. Um, like with the D and D book, I was not an expert on the history of Dungeons and Dragons. I had a great affinity for it and I could get into it quickly and pick up the vernacular and understand it and remind myself why it worked and, and extrapolate onto why it worked. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't an expert and I collaborated with some guys, one guy, Michael Whitworth, who'd written a biography on Gary Gygax and I responded to the book and I said, Michael, I want to make this book and I want to do it with you. This is a big undertaking. I think it's going to benefit from having a spectrum of voices. And then we brought on John Peterson, who is a verified game his, historian. And um, so it was good having all these different perspectives, vetting the imagery and the story and saying, why did it work? And we could all look at it from a new way and all learn. And I learned from them and they learned from me. And we discovered um, these big ideas. And some of them people have put forth before and our kind of macro analysis of the evolution of the brand, the, the pop culture, the art game evolution. Um, but I wrote from a place of wanting to learn as opposed to being, well, I'm the expert and this is the story. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was a healthier place. And I'd like to apply that to documentary or even story, you know, whatever story it is. Well, I was going to say that you're the way you approach the things that you learned by doing, um, or I should say really how you approach the D and D book, the history book is actually very documentary. I love it. I love it. It's like, you're actually yeah. approaching it more like a doc than a, like you say, a writing project. Now, I mean, and I mean, IP, you, you, you started out of the gate with, with Star Wars. I mean, you kind of ran right at it and there's something well, back-ended really fanboys is a sneaky way around, isn't it? 
Well, I was going to say, yeah, and it's also, you, it's, you, you talk to even yeah. just the fact that it's a personnel thing. I, I did read a little bit that you had some issues on, on getting that one done too, and that must have been a big thing to tackle. We did. I, I, I wanted, I was, it was a love letter to a fan community that I was a part of, and I didn't want it manipulated or um, misrepresented or maligned. And our studio, uh, the Weinstein Company, who acquired the movie via negative pickup, uh, loved what I did and was what I promised, but they're like, well, let's go bigger. Yeah. And they want to throw some fans under the bus. They want to make fun of fandom mm-hmm. and uh, make fans paint them as losers, mm-hmm. make them the butt of the joke. And the point of this was, no, these are ordinary people. Um, and we all are unified because we all have these passions, whether you're a sports fanatic or you, whatever genre you're into or whatever franchise you're into. Um, I think that's become much more evident over the years. Um, but at the time, a movie was out called Sideways, and I don't drink. I've never drank in my life, and I don't know the difference between uh, Merlot or you know whatever. But I, I love the passion in that movie. The Paul Giamatti character had a passion and a distinct way of talking about uh, wine. And um, I was like, that's what I want to imbue fanboys. You might not understand the reference or what they're talking about, but you understand the passion, and that's universal. And I, I, I that's how I wanted to approach the material. And they, at the end, we delivered this thing and they're like, let's just make an opening crawl. It says fanboy, a term for losers who can't get laid. I'm like, hold on a second here. I'm not putting my name on this because I went to George Lucas and I asked for his permission and said, I'm doing, I'm honoring the fan community. I'm not disparaging it. And ultimately George had my back and said, you know, we, we support Kyle's cut, not your Frankenstein cut. They played some games with me and they said, all right, well, here's your cut back. Uh, here's our cut. Go turn it back into your cut. You have 36 hours. Thankfully, I'd put my ego aside while they recut my movie multiple times. I went to every screening, took notes, and I was like, some things they did. I was like, oh, you like that joke? That I wanted that. Okay, now it's in there. I'm going to keep it. That worked better. See what played. Um, sometimes I discovered things about the material because I got to do extra test screenings. And I'm open. I'll learn from a test screening. I'm not going to say, you know, screw you and I'll whatever because you didn't like that. I want to hear if something doesn't work. When I'm editing something, I bring people in every week, strangers. Oh, your mom's in town? Bring her to the editing room. <laughs> I want to show her the movie. And they're like, why are you doing this? Um, I'm like, because I learned about the material. The movie is not for me. I, I already, I enjoyed doing it and dreaming it. I'm trying to make the best of what I have in front of me and I want to make it connect with people. And if their suggestion about what doesn't work at minute 22 in this turning point or whatever, it, I, I don't have to listen to their solution, but I do want to hear what's not working because I, as the architect with my team can then go back and go, it's not about that moment that didn't work. What didn't work was that it wasn't set up right. 15 minutes in. So by the time we get to 22, it's not hitting. So it's not necessarily the answer you get from a test audience, but it's that you have to be open to absorb what everyone's saying and not be hurt by it. Like I was writing, I'm just like, let's cut it. Let's change it. It's free. I'm not going to sit and debate when I could just rewrite it. Or when I'm shooting, someone's like, I don't know if it's going to work. I'm like, just let's just shoot it. Then we'll change it and we'll move over here and we'll change the lens and we'll do that. Like we, why waste five minutes arguing about this when the de- I think death on a set is when you stop and debate. Death for directors when you don't have an answer. Yeah, so when you don't know. You always have an answer. Yeah. I'm going to shoot it. Like the I did a movie called um, The Hollow. It's the first movie I directed. And I got called up by a friend of mine, Mason Nova, Cooper's Juno, and some other movies. And he's like, uh, and Hans Rodionoff, who wrote Swamp Thing movie. And he's like, they're like, what are you doing today? And I was in town. I was in LA pitching an animated film. And um, like, meet us at Starbucks quick. 
And I was like, what's going on? So I drive to the Starbucks in La Cienega and they're like, okay, do you want to direct this movie? We lost the director last night. He had a nervous breakdown. He drove up the coast. We're shooting in two hours. Um, it's your movie. Uh, you want to come to set? And I was like, wait, wait, what? And it was a Sunday. I couldn't call anybody. Uh, I was supposed to fly home. I was like, uh, okay. So I show up on set. And it's a modern day retelling of Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And had Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys and Kevin Zegers from the Air Bud franchise and Kaylee Coco, who was on Eight Simple Rules and um, uh, Big Bang Theory, you know. Um, it's like Stacey Keach and Eileen Brennan and Judd Reinhold and all these different people. And I was like, what is this movie? And the DP, uh, we became friends. But the first day, I was like, I didn't even know the script. I just remember I got scene 73. I saw a little bit of scene 72 and a little bit of scene 74 in the sides. I didn't even know out of 112. I'm like, all right, we're nearing the end of act two, I guess. I'm just trying to figure everything out. I'm like, all right, do you have any, you know, blue filters? I'm like, nope, just chocolate. I'm like, all right, so we're going to use some chocolate filters and the lights. Cool. And then I'd be like, all right, put the put the camera here on a high hat, on this low angle, put it on this lens. I went behind the shed and I'm like going to cry because I'm like, I don't even know what the script is. Like, what the hell is this movie? I felt like Ed Wood. And I meet the actors, and the actors want out of the movie, and their lawyers are on set, and oh, like, this is the worst no. movie ever. We want out. And, you know, the footage looked like Power Rangers. That headless horseman came out of the ground, and it looked like they just bought his costume. It was brand new, so oh. I started running it through the dirt. And I'm like, doing it, and the headless horseman has a head. I'm like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I come back around the shed, and he's put the camera, the DP put the camera on, on a dolly in the middle of the woods on a super zoom lens. And I was like, Awesome, let's do that. And he thought I was going to yell at him. Right. And then the next scene, I was like, let's put the camera over here and let's do this. And I came back and he just ignored me. I was like, great idea. I love that. Thanks. And so I just kept doing that with him. And then for two days, he's like, you know, I'm not going to fuck with you anymore. I'm trying to get fired. I don't want to work in this movie, but I like you. So what do you want to do? Like, and I just had to win people over because I'm not going to sit here and fight with somebody. I don't, I didn't no. pick the cast. I didn't pick the crew. I didn't write the story. I have no say in anything. I'm just there to try and figure out how to make this salvageable end product so they could sell it and ended up getting like some sound guild awards and stuff. And, um, I felt proud of the things I could control, but it was chaos. You know, it was, I literally got pneumonia. I cried. I thought I, I'd rather be dead than do this. I lost thousands of dollars. Never got paid. I was in the hospital with pneumonia bills. It was the oh, worst. No. Um, but I learned everything I could possibly learn on that. I said, yeah, this experience is irreplaceable. And I said, I can handle anything. And the next movie was dealing with the Weinstein Company. And then um, you learn a whole new set of tools oh, I bet. doing that. Uh, so it's just you, you, you just kind of accumulate experience. And you just have to go in and be kind to people and be clear and keep reiterating what you want passionately. And hopefully in film it transpires and is infectious and everyone gets behind it. And you just hope you, you – get behind a good script and good crew and good people. So it's like, if you can find the bad people in advance, it's like, they're going to rot the experience for everyone. You just don't work with them. It's good that you don't, if you don't die on the way, it's also good. It's a benefit. The pneumonia sounds bad. Like that sounds like a don't do. I've actually been there too. Uh, Pneumonia. Ironically, I was also in the, I was also in the States when I got pneumonia on a set, which was, yeah. Oh boy. We don't, we we don't have pneumonia, what you call pneumonia bills. What's a, we don't have that here. Don't say it. Don't Don't say it. Okay. Shouldn't have said that out loud. Sorry. Canada. I, I think it's horrific that you could be 
driven to bankruptcy by medical bills. I'm Canadian. I'll stop there. It drives me crazy. I feel bad for 2003, you, four? Is that the year that you were doing 2004, yeah. Is that how you met? I did a little thing. It was interesting. I did a, a animated documentary. It was on this artist called Brian Alfred, and I wanted to explore him through animation by bringing to life his paintings, but it was a documentary. And we got it into Sundance, and it was a short film I was doing at the time. So I, I've always liked these weird, these formats. So I like documentary and I like animation. And I was like, no one's really done something like that, um, per se, where it wasn't like an interview doc. It was an exploration of the artist and their style through mm-hmm. animation. So, and then I jumped into this weird Washington Irving modern retelling of you know Sleepy Hollow. I was like, oh, I liked all these things at the same time, and I, I'm hard to put in a box. And I think that's also been limiting for me because I don't just go into one genre and just live in it. So, yeah, but it's made it, it more fun. If you look at it from the outside, um, you're. Well, in fact, I'll ask it this way. So, one of the reasons we know each other is because of Adam F. Goldberg, and yep. one thing that I find interesting about him is how tightly he's been able to put the things he likes into the work he does and that's what you're doing too i'm assuming that you're focusing your energies where your passions are in if they're called nerd pursuits if they're those kinds of pursuits that you like you love star wars you'll go down the road a little further than somebody would who doesn't love it the same is that fair yeah totally i'm willing to just deep dive because it doesn't feel like work. It feels like I'm learning about mm-hmm. stuff I love and I'm learning about myself and it's, I'm thankful to be doing it. I never looked at things for money. I, I don't just live my life looking at, I'm like, if it's good, you're going to keep creating and then you'll finally make money. You know, it's, it's a weird mm-hmm. way to approach it professionally, but which is challenging, but um, you know, it's, I think you just follow what you love is, is really the key. But I think what that allows you to do then is you can be multi-platform. You can work across a number of different formats because the intrinsic value is in maybe sometimes the subject matter itself, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I have done some people are like, wait, you you do videos for Taylor Swift and Lana Del Rey and then you're writing a book on the history of D&D. Like, how does this, (laughs) what are you, what are you you doing? You know, what what pigeonhole can we put you in? We can't figure this out. I like it. It's weird. I I love it all. And I'm like, you know, I feel, I still feel like myself. I don't feel out of place doing Mm -hmm. it. So I'm like, I'm doing something right. Um, Totally. I don't just live in the music video world and I don't just, um, you know, live in the D&D author world and, or the narrative film world. So it's, it's challenging um, for sure, but Adam does it really well. I mean, Adam's a pretty brilliant guy. And I think, you know, I met him at film school and knew right away, like he was a very talented writer and he was already carving out professional space for himself. And he had a very defined voice. Also went to school with Brian Vaughn. He was like a prolific and uh, genius comic book. Amazing. um, Writer and, immediately knew Brian was up to something special and he was before we can graduate, he was like writing a DC comics and stuff. And you just find these people who have very distinct voices and very unique ways of seeing the world. And that was inspiring. You know, it's great to be able to collaborate with Adam still. And we're doing some stuff, Randall and your team and with Adam. And I know you guys have done things before with Adam. And, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, and obviously Adam was one of the, uh, co-writers of fanboys yeah. and we'd worked on other stuff. So, uh, I love the guy and I think it's it's brilliant and beautiful the way he's just translated the things that are personal, family and, and things exactly. he loves 
it's 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 rare and it's very honest. It's it's this this thing that allows you to as I say, to transmute, you're using the same raw material, your passion for the subject matter or your passion for that field. And if you were, I know you've said you've been involved in animation, you've been involved in, well, this cookbook, for example, are you a foodie or is it the D&D that pulls you through that? <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of both. I love, I love food. I love cooking. I cook a lot. Um, I was a boy scout, so I learned a lot about like just different methods of cooking on the fly. I learned to cook, you know, at home through my family. Um, I would cook a lot growing up. I didn't like buy a lot of cookbooks and study the art of cooking, but I had an affinity for it. And I'd learned and I looked at it in an artful way. Like I'd almost change my recipes every time, like just do things a little differently to see what happened. And so I didn't like treat it totally scientifically. Uh, mm -hmm. it's probably baking you need to, but like just cooking, you can kind of feel your way through things. Um, uh, so I had a passion for cooking and then this opportunity, our publisher, uh, an imprint of, of Penguin Random House, who we did Art and Arcana with, asked us about um, if we'd like to do uh, a cookbook. And having deep dive back into D&D history and going through different Volo guides and some of the Dragonlance source books like the, 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 the Leaves books, um, there's always been this um, – connection with D&D and culture and food and you're also you're at a tabletop with six mm -hmm. seven friends and you eat food invariably and whether it's pizza and Cheetos or you go deeper and we're all about immersion and connection and it felt like this natural uh, progression that you could bring food to the table that would be germane to the game you're playing maybe some of the themes going on or maybe some of the cultures and so I, I it resonated with me and and John Peterson and Michael Whitworth and uh, we just collaborated again to bring this life. So it became a deep dive into D&D history, yeah. uh, looking back forensically as what was written in different books, be it like Dragonlance or mm -hmm. um, Forgotten Realms books. Uh, they talked about, you know, Kithpah or what a certain <clears throat> elven culture would eat at a feast. And then 10 years later, someone wrote a book and they'd mentioned that pomegranate was available and what type of leaf. And then we'd have to put all this information together to create what would be the available palette and extrapolate and develop recipes based on stuff that were mentioned. Um, so we get into um, Eberron and Ravenloft and Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance. And we explore different elves of different worlds and different dwarves. And we go through the, I would say, the um, the linchpin fantasy cultures, halflings and humans and elves yeah. and dwarves. And we get into drinks, desserts, and we get into the exotic races and the uncommons and what their type of food is like and how it's available in different um, cities in the different worlds, be it Waterdeep or Greyhawk or um, you know, where it might be available in Kryn. And, and it, so it's like, uh, it's, and it's palatable. It's a very modern cookbook. So it's mm -hmm. not totally leaning into old European food because that's not what D&D, if you look at the continent, you look at Toril, you look at the planet, it's very diverse. Um, what's available in Chult is very different than what's available in Mystica versus what's available in Icewind Dale. And, um, we have this nice fold out map. We have a Barnes and Noble special edition, which is, uh, by Jared Blando. And it kind of paints a picture of what's available in different regions of the forgotten realms. And it feels like an old world map, you know, so D and D map, you might pull it out right now and look at a map, you know, one of their fifth edition books. And, you know, it feels like that's the current map. But imagine yeah. if you went 300 years back prior to that, an unreliable map that had sea monsters on it, you know, like our unreliable maps. So we wanted to totally. explore like 
the foundational foods. So it became a passion project just because I was exploring uh, the worlds of D&D. It could translate into this cool cookbook. And I didn't ever picture myself writing a cookbook, but it comes out uh, October 27th, and I'm pretty excited about it. Well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. If you you look at the core interest and you spin out something weird, like a cookbook is a strange grab for you, as you say yourself. But yeah. now that you're in it, you can see the line is through that passion for the core interest. Totally makes sense. Yeah. And that, yeah. that really, that's sort of what we are, you know, I wouldn't say we're like that. We're not going to make a cookbook, but we're allowing ourselves to be carried. You're not stuck. You're not going to say, this is what we do. We're whatever, Turtles fans or what have you, because we made a documentary on Turtles. No, you say, this is a way of thinking about the things I love and the passions that yeah. you know drive me. And they can take you to places that you don't anticipate if you're open to that. And again, True. that's why I, I link you to someone like Adam. Like, just a really interesting thing that Adam said to me once is, you know, some of the details that other people that would be at Sony at the time working on that show, they would say, this doesn't matter. But to him, it's really important. No, no, no. That's the detail that I'm sticking to. That's where we're going to have a battle because the verisimilitude, very you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what people don't like about some of us who are collectors or whom they call nerds or whatever, even as we're growing up, because we have specificities, you know, I like this Bowie, not that Bowie. You know, these yeah. are the albums with my Bowie. This is my D&D, &D, right? This is my Alien. This is my Terminator. Like we very much do that. And those can carry us through a lot of very strange, you know, dark alleys or diagon alleys, depending on which... <laughs> Which my my D and D cookbook would just be like stale bread and cheese as I'm on the road. That's it. That's yeah. all. Well, no, he you gotta have the road. we have road food in there. We have the stuff for the single, the the solitary adventurer. You know, if it's your night off, and we have community food. So we try to like think about like so program crazy. that. Like, what's simple? What's like a meal if you're just home by yourself? What's a meal for like a daytime group game? What's a meal for like what's a feast? You know, so. And it's different, a great different idea. people want to bring different levels of complexity to it, which is, which I think is, is fair. Something that we have to mention is that one of the fun places that you get to eat food and play D and D is with what Hollywood Reporter called the Hollywood Game. Is that what they called that Joe's Game? They yeah they they made some conjectures about it, and I would say it is it is um, one of the more preeminent private games you could probably play and it's it's pretty incredible um so i play with joe manganello who's a huge D, D aficionado and he wrote the forward to our book dungeon dragons art and arcana and joe runs a company called death saves um he's really deep diving into old fantasy art and creating new fantasy mm -hmm. uh it's, it's apparel clothing and beyond you know it's becoming like a lifestyle and uh he's a real um historian you know, with, with fantasy art and, and D&D as a brand. And Joe is somebody we're collaborating with too, with Adam and, and with, and with you guys. Um, and I play in this game with Joe and he's curated this wonderful group of, um, uh, I, I knew how they're not actors. We have like, <laughs> you know, Dan Weiss and Dave Benioff, you know, Game of Thrones creators play with us and, and the big show from WWE who's like a uh, seven time, eight time world champion wrestler and Vince Vaughn and, you know, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. And we've had some just incredible 
guest stars too. So it's this wonderful group of people that, you know, they all have had these luminous careers and stuff, but they put all that aside. They just come and they're just playing like they're teenagers and getting together with their friends and um, telling stories, collaboratively telling stories. You know, it's like no one thinks about any of that stuff. And then it's funny when you see Holly Reporter do a story and you're like, I guess, you know, I guess I see why everyone's like clamoring. They'd want to play in this game. But like, it's not like that when you're there. No. You know, like Vince Vaughn's just playing this sorcerer and he's, you know, just coming up with funny spells and doing things. And you're, you just, that's just his character casing, you know, so it's, you don't look at it that way. It's, it's, uh, it's funny the way all that's stripped away and you just become like friends at a table. Um, but it is, uh, if you do sometimes step back and look at the story that Joe is weaving and the scale of it and the complexity of it and just the, the power he wields as a storyteller, he's an amazingly brilliant guy i think you look some of these people are like oh he's just you know he's a jock and he's athletic and he's fit and you're like hold on a second this guy's actually a genius like if you talk to him about story you talk to him about history and pop culture he gets everything and he can explain it yeah. to you and you can have these deep communications about why things work and why they connect and he's just just a brilliant storyteller and i think it helps him as an actor and as a you know producer that he can see story that way and it can and can communicate it not just understand it but can also communicate and they create his own so to get to be able to play in this game is is pretty spectacular and you don't realize how lucky you are i guess until you, you i mean i love it it's like my favorite yeah. thing to do each week so i feel very fortunate but it's just like my game you know that i'm in so but then when you well, see you, the outside eyes, but you know, it, wow, okay. you know why it's why I mentioned it, why I brought it up is I can see how your interest in, you know, the food, the deep dive of the food could be mirrored in the interest that Joe puts into the game. Like you have that room that's very themed and it looks like there's a lot of attention paid to the details and the specificity there and it looks like you know from what he's put on instagram that you know he's thinking about what's the meal at the game like there's a lot of thinking that has been put into that too right so much that he prepares you know countless hours every week probably twice as twice as many hours as we actually play and he's done some incredible culinary um yeah. You know explorations and he's had like art smith who's you know oprah chef like come to the house one time and make make us a feast and we've had like crazy food trucks and stuff and every time there's something there's like a little surprise or something different so um yeah but it's always and sometimes it's just you know we get doritos and there's cookies and his wife sophia will wheel in a little cart with coffee first time we're like are you having people over after us and he's like <laughs> no that's for you guys we're like your wife just wheeled us in this like amazing yeah. cart of coffees and cookies and we're like, I mean, we're allowed to touch this. Um, to me, that's the detail that we are talking about that. Yeah. Of course you could do food. Of course you could make a room that feels fun to play in and you could have shirts and just the people who are like this, those of us who are like this, we love those things, the elements, the fetish parts, the tangibles, yeah. right? Absolutely. It, it, um, the visceral side of it, the tangible side of it. Um, I love the, all the clothing wear that Joe does with Death Saves. You know, it's just, it's a little bit of history in it and there's something mm -hmm. specific. And someone's like, what is that? But if you know, you know, there's something cool about that, you know? Yeah. And Do you, well, I just, I just totally I like, pulled it up. I'm so excited oh, about this. <laughs> Do you think, though, that's part of the dark side is that 
you know, let's say we're working on a project, which we are, and we're talking in the background sometimes about trying to satisfy fans who are specific and have very deep needs. And then the general audience who says, you know, just give me a good story and good characters and some stuff that I don't know and pull me in that way. So you really have to, I mean, you've probably had the same internet situation where somebody sees something you made and they go, you forgot the most important part. And it's some detail that, man, that's, (laughs) can't put it all in, right? That's, they want what they want. And you can only do so much. It's even something you learn when you're working with actors. Actors come to the table and they're very specific about things. They're like, my character would do this or they would mm-hmm. say this. And they're not, a lot of times they're not wrong. But what you have to do is make that that macro editorial choice to say, that's right, but does, does that need to be on screen? Is that informing the bigger picture, which is the flow of the story or the pipeline or the sequence? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that detail is absolutely truthful to you or that absolutely specific. But does it service what you need to do as the filmmaker, which is communicate this idea or get you from point A to B in the sequence? And what's the most dynamic and efficient and poignant or emotional or expressive way to do that? So you have to qu- quickly make those decisions. And sometimes you're like, OK, we'll, we'll try it that way. And sometimes you just, just we just don't have time. Sometimes you're like. I understand what you're going for. Let's try and bring it out in this line, this feeling. Yeah. But we can't rewrite the script here. And and I, I'm not a big uh, – I don't like rewriting scripts on, on sets unless something's really not working or you lose a location. Um, there's a time for that, and that's called pre-production. So um, anytime I hear about people rewriting movies on, on while they're making them, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Like when I was working with Haley Steinfeld on, on Barely Lethal – uh, one of the most frustrating things for me was, you know, she was uh, she wasn't 18 yet, and um, so working kid hours, but also could have spent a few grand to train her prior to mm-hmm. production. And the producer was like, "We don't want to fly her out a week or two early." I'm like, "It's like five grand for this trainer for the week, or you can train her every day on set, eat into your shooting time, and yeah. basically be spending about fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars an hour waiting while yeah. you're slowly learning, move by like." Who makes these value judgments? It's, it's just suicidal. You're gonna do this the whole production on a movie that has action in it, or could we have just brought her a week early and trained her? You know, that's not good. But they don't want to. They don't want to put the money in pre-production. They want. It's just. It's weird. I, you yeah. just, sometimes you just. You're. Um, my mind is blown by the decisions, uh, people make. Um, so I love efficiency, and I think with an independent mindset, everything I've done has been independent. Even when I was doing stuff with Taylor Swift, I would approach it with super independent mind and we would take one camera and a car and I'd be like, you don't need your makeup team. And really? You're like, what? And her team like, really? And she trusted you, me and we would just you do. You convinced her? Yeah. Yeah. We would do little things just in the car wow. with me, her and, and the camera and her. Yeah. And you don't need all that sometimes to, to do. But you've got to get people out of the mindset that you need. Yeah a trailer over there with a camera crew and a, a car that's going to pull your car. And I mean, you just have to know what you're going to see and know what you need and be able to convince somebody and the key people that that's, that's all you need. So I, I like to approach things as streamlined and as economically as possible. Um, 
it's always been kind of my I think because I've always been saddled with those problems. It's like here's a box, figure it out. Yeah. So I've just made that part of how I approach things because I hate waste. You know what I mean? When you see all these sequences yeah. you cut, and you're like, we don't need them. But I, I could have told you 10 months ago we didn't need to shoot that. I told you it was useless, but like you wanted to shoot it, and there you wasted two days of 25 on this thing, and you didn't need it, you know? So that stuff bugs me. So I like to think of the edit before I make it and yeah. anticipate a year or two in advance when you're testing something, how people are going to feel about it, and understand your audience. I couldn't agree more. Isaac, I know what you're thinking about. <laughs> He's talking our language. We're in the same boat. We specifically in documentaries, you will sometimes think you have to get a certain person and you've done this before. The kind of docs that we do, you have to take the chance like, yeah, we have to take that one trip to Seattle to get that one person because we think that's going to be critical. And you burn a lot of calories and a lot of money getting that person. And then you find out later, maybe they're not in the cut. So everybody does that. One thing yeah. I want to I wanna hit you before I let you go, you're also a collector. And yeah. you obviously have a lot of interest in Star Wars. You, you mentioned Marvel Comics. And we know there's other some I mean, Dungeons and Dragons, but there's probably other stuff. You want to talk a little bit about what you've been collecting or what you what you like to collect or something you have you're proud of? We kind of focus on collecting here sometimes. It'd be interesting to hear yeah. what you've got or what you like. Well, I was very I collected comic books as a kid, and Star Wars has always been infused with me. So um, I have all the vintage Star Wars action figures and things not all on cards but i have some i have on cards and there's some that are rarer than others like you know i have a 21 back empire yoda and i have like a japanese c3po carded and 12 back chewbacca things like that that yeah uh, that i love some of the power of the force figures on cards which you know as a kid a few of them i didn't have and i got to in college i, I finally found them or got them you know obviously now they've gone up considerably um, so I have a complete collection of all the, the vintage stuff. I love anything that um, Hasbro puts out in the vintage original style. Um, I see no point to any of the other stuff. I'm very militant about this. Like a kid doesn't know the difference between no. vintage or not. They just want the action yeah. figure. So you put out the action figures that you want to put out. But um, there's a nostalgia value and there's there's a play in that when you tap into – what the old line looked like in a continuation and there's like a lineage and star Wars has been about lineage and generations. And I don't understand why you wouldn't just put things out on those cards. And I know they're precious about it, but like you look at things like the episode two line on these nasty blue cards, it might as well have been like Jimmy Neutron. Like, what is this? Like, why would you not have put these, why would you not have found that synergy? Also the same, the same thing uh -huh. with, with force awakens and, um, uh, you know, Rise of Skywalker and the other movie. Um, <laughs> there is a there is a history there that they could have tapped into more readily than they did. And a lot of, you know, you heard JJ talking like, oh, it's a throwback and then there's a connection to the past. And it's like, well, why didn't why didn't you guys embrace that across the board? Yeah. Um, so I was I was mystified by things like that. They still did a pretty good job connecting and they did smaller collections uh after the fact but i don't think they connected as deep as they could have you know, i miss those episode one i love the way you know it launched and there was like 20 something new action figures and they they kind of tried to recreate some of the magic um you know now it's harder because they've gotten into six inch and uh it just feels 
weird to me. I'm not into Funko Pop per se. I don't I don't totally get it. And uh, I've never I was I played Lego and stuff. My brothers loved Lego more. I was more into action figures. I loved G.I. Joe. I loved He-Man. I loved Thundercats and, and Star Wars was the pinnacle, you know, mask and stuff like that. I loved more than, say, just freeform Lego building um, comic books. I love. I mean, I love Marvel and DC, but I was probably much more of a Marvel person. Mm-hmm. You know, it was X-Men and Spider-Man and Wolverine are probably my top three. I love Batman, though. Batman's like pinnacle. But um, beyond that, beyond Batman, it was always Marvel. And so I've mm-hmm. been fortunate over the years to pretty much get most of the books I've ever wanted as a kid. A lot of them I found like high school or college got very cheap or right after um you know, I started working professionally. I was able to grab a few books. I love like a Justice League number one for 500 bucks or oh. things like that, which have gone up a lot. Yes. Um, Amazing Fantasy 15 and, you know, X-Men 1, Fantastic Four 1, um, First Appearance of Thor and Journey into Mystery and yeah. Daredevil and, uh, you know, everything. Like First Guardians, First Black Panther, First Silver Surfer. So I, I go back through Man. Marvel history. I That's want, awesome. I still really want like... Uh, Tales of Suspense, yeah, um, thirty nine, yeah, gotta have that. Uh, I had I had uh, issue forty, um, but I wanted like I want that one. I love an Incredible Hulk number one, but that's that's one of those rare Marvel. It's out there. Oh, chopped out one second. So, you chopped out for a second. It's out there, but there's yeah. less of them. Oh, there, can you guys hear me now? Yeah, yeah. We there's got less. You now. Of, I feel like there's less of the Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Fantastic Wars and, and you know, Amazing Fantasy 15 are kind of like key, key Marvel ones. And, uh, um, you know, there's no rush one day in life. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I, I'm, I'm less, um, I don't collect as much in terms of, of anything. Like my connection with stuff is kind of like, I got like, when I started, when I started working on fanboys. It was like, okay, I get to do something no one else gets to do here. And I'm exploring it. I didn't have the time or the money to really be a dedicated Mm-hmm. A completest collector. I still try and go back and get anything that's on like on a vintage style card, but I'm missing a few recently. It's just been hard, harder to. We can't buy them in stores. It's become an eBay only business, and um, and now I'm getting to play with things through my kids. You know, and they're exploring Star Wars and and um, other IPs and Harry Potter and stuff. So I get them stuff that they love, and I get to kind of experience it through them. So it's less about my collection. I really display a lot, but I, I have certain books. I sold a lot of my comic books too, so I could buy certain books that I wanted to always have so I could look at them rather than letting a few things yes. have rather a few things yeah. I can look at rather than having boxes of stuff. I'm like, I don't need all these boxes of things like, you know, like Avengers 12, like cool, but I'd rather just look at Avengers number one or this favorite Avengers cover than just saying I have all this stuff. Um, so I've been able to kind of separate myself from volume and go that's, for quantity. That's a really smart collecting strategy that I need to write down. <laughs> yeah. Don't have the long box. Uh, I'm I know still Isaac. Guilty of it. You know, there's things I oh, love. Oh, do you? But yeah, you'll buy there's, a collection. Still, like I'd love to get more. Yeah. Do you buy? You what do you guys collect? Oh man, I, Isaac only has kids so that he can buy toys. I'll say basically, that. yeah, and and watch cartoons that we loved when we were kids that we can rewatch now. That's basically actually, and I'm also, 
I had kids so I can make toys ran. Like that's that's the other thing. That's true. You make toys for your children. That's a a different company. I'm a Wolverine guy, so I was a G1 Wolverine fan. I collect Wolverine stuff and have a lot of the good stuff. And over the years, it spread so far. You know how it is. It's hard to pick it up when it's everywhere. Like you, I wanted to get Hulk 181, and I wanted to get you know the stuff that was pertinent to me. So I got all those, but I I never got X-Men 1, and I recently started going back and picking up Spider-Mans that I really liked as a kid, and that's a dangerous game to get into. For me, it's mostly uh, old-school toys, uh, meaning like 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s toys. A lot of fantasy art and Frazetta covers. I'm a big Frazetta nut, so it's like book covers. A little bit of, you know, dabble. I wish I could collect more <laughs> actual original art, but just oh, a little bit. <laughs> that's a rough game. That is but a yeah, very yeah, it's mostly, game. For me, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's Star Wars, G.I. Joe, Transformers, a lot of Ninja Turtles, He-Man, all that stuff. It's all the good stuff. It's the only reason we make movies is yeah, to get good collectibles. Turtles. <laughs> it's just the stuff we have. <laughs> well, listen, speaking of kids, we should let you look after yours. Yeah. We've kept you for a long time. Um, maybe someday when we talk about something else specific, we'll pull you back in and yeah. really pick some details out of your brain. Does that make sense? Anytime. Kyle, I know you're busy. You have children. You have a life. You have to do things. You can't just talk to us all night about stuff that we find interesting. Although, I mean, it seemed to go pretty quickly for us. Isaac, thoughts? Yeah. I mean, like I say, it's been awesome getting to know you more. And uh, I'm just insanely impressed that we're more or less all in the same wavelength so it's pretty awesome <laughs> yes. thanks, thanks so, much, Kyle. so much it's been a, a fun conversation thanks you're, you're the only person who's ever said that <laughs> thanks man all right talk to you next time thank you take care guys Be good.